Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 130. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43 and follow with some thoughts about Jewish utopias, past and present. This episode's portion is all about Yechezkel's vision about the future Jerusalem. Led by a mysterious bronze man, yes, a bronze man, Yechezkel tours the space with a linen cord and measuring reed in hand because the bronze man intends to lay out the scope and span of the new temple, its courts, vestibules, thresholds, recesses, chambers, pilasters, even some sacred furniture, including the altar, everything down to the last square cubit. There's even a quick primer in near offering in chapter 43, including which line of Kohanim are to perform the temple ritual. This tour goes on for four chapters and in fine detail, because Yechezkel is to deliver these comprehensive schematics to the people with a dual purpose. The first is a not-so-subtle rebuke, because any talk of the temple necessarily involves talk about why the first one was destroyed in the first place. Yes, you guessed it, idolatry. And the second reason, Obs, is that when the exile inevitably ends, and everyone returns to the land of Israel, this is what God would like the people to build, and the kind of finishes God wants in the reno of the full temple package. And on that constructive note, here endeth the lesson. For a portion overflowing with prosaic details and measurements, there's a tendency to let them all kind of blur into this mess of facts and figures. But I want to point out one right at the beginning that I overlooked in my all-too-slow reading of Ezekiel 40 through 43. Yechezkel has this vision, quote, In the 25th year of our exile, the 14th year after the city had fallen, at the beginning of the year, the 10th day of the month. Now, by my calculation, that date is the 10th of Tishrei, which means that Yechezkel's vision of the future Jerusalem and the Second Temple took place on Yom Kippur. Now, Yom Kippur is generally regarded as the most solemn day of the Jewish year. It's a fast day. You know, people are, are donning their finest sneakers. They're toughing it out during the service which for many Jews is probably the only time they attend synagogue that year, standing up, sitting down. With that, you know, I, oh, I just skip breakfast and lunch, hunger in their stomachs. It's truly an example of what the Torah commands us, quote, It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall afflict your souls. But the thing is, Yom Kippur is really supposed to be a happy day. It's a day of renewed opportunity, you know, where the slate is wiped clean and we can start a new year with a fresh start. And that is what Yechezkel's vision is really all about. It's a fresh start for the Jewish people in a brand new space on an unnamed mountain that could accommodate such a massive structure. But if you remember, this is Yechezkel's second tour of Jerusalem. The first time was in chapters 8 through 11, where he got the grand tour of all the iniquities and the idolatry and the sinning and the idol worship. Well, that city is gone. It's been wiped away by fire. Now he's on a victory tour, led by Bronze Man, 
of this new Jewish utopia. The shiny city on the hill, literally a glorious beacon to a downtrodden people languishing in exile. Except that utopia is supposed to be this no place. That's the meaning of the word. That's, that's what utopia literally means. No place. Wherever it is posited or whenever, it's not anywhere real. Plato's Republic, written in 380 BCE, was preoccupied by notions of justice, the proper running of the city-state, and the just individual. All of these are theoretical discussions. Thomas More's 1516 book, which gave this place its name, was located in a fictional island society. Dominican philosopher Tommaso Campanella's 1602 book, The City of the Sun, was written in the form of a dialogue between a Grand Master of the Knights Hospitaller and a Genoese sea captain. It's about a fictional theocratic society where goods, women, and children were all held in common. Oh joy. Francis Bacon's 1627 book, New Atlantis, posited science as the key to universal happiness and the foundation for, quote, generosity and enlightenment, dignity and splendor, piety and public spirit. But all of this is set in a mythical city of Ben Salem. H.G. Wells' 1906 novel, A Modern Utopia, told the story of two travelers who fell into a space-time warp and suddenly found themselves upon a utopian Earth controlled by a single world government. Again, it's, it's a fantasy locale. In the Jewish mind, Jutopia is a real place. It's the land of Israel, specifically Jerusalem, and as we saw in this episode's portion, it's very real. Down to the last cubit, just ask Bronze Man. Unlike Plato's Republic, Jutopia does not seek a political end, an ideal commonwealth based on justice, which according to Plato is the supreme virtue. In Jutopia, the goal is the spiritual perfection of human society and ethical harmony. The restored and rebuilt Holy Land, with the temple standing at its center, will serve as a focus, model, and source of inspiration for the improved life of all of humanity. Which kind of begs the question, how different is this notion of Jutopia than the notion of Messiah, or as they say in Hebrew, So the thing is, these notions really aren't that different because, uh, you know, I guess we can go through the list if you like. Do we have tribulations? Is there suffering? Is the current world order totally overturned? Will a descendant of the house of David be reinstalled as the leader of the people? Will all of humanity, you know, enter into this era of total flourishing and fulfillment? except that two catastrophic misfires chastened Jewish thinkers into leaning too hard into this notion of Mashiach coming to save the day. The first happened in 132 CE, when uh, Shimon bar Kozva, or Kozva led the Jews in Judea in revolt against the Roman Empire. He managed to establish an independent Jewish state, which he ruled for three years as Nasi, or prince. bar Kosiva or bar Kosba, or as he was better known, bar Kochba, was considered by many, including the luminary Rabbi Akiva, to be the Mashiach. Although Barakokhba had a good run, the Romans sent six full legions with auxiliaries and elements from up to six additional legions to suppress the revolt. The resulting destruction, ruin, and enslavement made what happened in Judea after the Great Revolt in 67 CE look like a romp with the Teletubbies. 
According to third century Roman historian Cassius James Dio, Come on, you have to give me that one. When when can you work in a, a, a Cassius Dio, Ronnie James? Anyway, according to third century historian Cassius Dio, they were the death toll in the revolt reached almost 600,000. So many Jews were sold into slavery that you could buy a slave in the markets in Hebron for less than it would cost to feed your horse. The victorious emperor Hadrian went on, went on to ban Torah study in the Hebrew calendar. He regarded the leading rabbis as enemies of the state, and once they were apprehended, he had them executed in large numbers. He banned Jews from entering Jerusalem, except on Tisha B'Av, to mourn the temple's destruction. Perhaps it was also a reminder of Roman power. He also installed statues of Jupiter and himself on the Temple Mount and ordered that the name Judea be erased from all maps and replaced with the name Syria-Palestina. This catastrophe definitely reoriented the rabbis away from any kind of political organizing and activism, but there was still a latent hope for the Mashiach who would come and set everything right again. Kind of like how I hoped for the Cubs to win the World Series throughout my, you know, childhood and teen years and most of my adulthood. But with every flare-up of hope or flurry of prediction and preparation for Mashiach, there was an equally fierce backlash against it. It began, surprisingly, during the frenzy around Bar Kokhba when Rabbi Akiva famously declared, this one is King Messiah. Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta was quick to reply, quote, Akiva, grass will grow between your jaws, and the son of David still will not have come. <laughs> and this back and forth of, is it him? No, it's not. Stop counting. Continued pretty much without respite until the second big misfire in 1666, when Shabtai Tzvi claimed to be the Mashiach. And before he converted to Islam at the Ottoman Sultan's behest, he figuratively turned the Jewish world upside down. So you can imagine the reaction to the secular Jutopians who in the late 19th century seemed to be taking up the mantle of Mashiach, but they weren't waiting passively, nor were they offering calculations or looking to a descendant of the house of David to reinstate the monarchy. They were not doing that. They were reading Alt Neuland, the old new land, and meeting with heads of state and collecting money to buy land in Palestine. And they were training young people in agricultural techniques and getting onto ships and sailing across the Mediterranean to Yafo before heading out into the hinterland to collectively farm and crack rocks and write poetry and dance and be miserable and get malaria. Because they'd seen it so many times before, and it's, so it's not surprising that Orthodox Ashkenazi rabbis came out against these Zionist pioneers in the movement's early days. I mean, you had all that secular talk and the socialism, and that was so hard to swallow. But provoking Mashiach by you know, seeking to reestablish a Jewish state in the land of Israel, it's unacceptable. And you know, they weren't alone. Reform rabbis also spoke out against this late 19th century Jutopian vision, not because of Mashiach, but because they saw Zionism as a threat to their status as citizens in the diaspora. For the reform movement, Jews were not a nation, but as the 1885 Pittsburgh Platform stated, quote, a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine nor a sacrificial worship under the administration of the sons of Aaron, nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. Well, folks, what to say about this Jutopian experiment? Did it succeed in restoring and rebuilding the Holy Land? 
with the temple standing at its center, and most importantly, did it serve as a focus and model and source of inspiration for the improved life of all of humanity? I think the jury is still out on that one. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 131 when we conclude the book of Ezekiel with chapters 44 through 47.